Welcome to the latest episode of The Third Wheel, HSF's podcast series on all things ESG. Today is a special secret takeover episode. We're taking the wheel from our usual hosts, Mel Debenham and Tim Stutt, to discuss carbon and biodiversity credits and offsetting to achieve net zero or nature positive goals. So thank you to Mel and to Tim for letting us take over. I'm Catherine Pacey, a partner in our environment and planning practice. I advise government and private sector clients on major infrastructure projects, environmental compliance, regulatory issues, and planning and environment litigation. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Isabella Kelly, who is an ESG senior associate, and Jaya Prasad, a solicitor in our energy and resources team. Welcome both, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to be back. Thanks, Catherine. I'm super excited to be here. It's going to be fun. But before we get the conversation going, I wanted to set a little bit of context. So there has been a lot happening around carbon credits, net zero ambitions, biodiversity repair, offsets. Australia has now legislatively enshrined our greenhouse gas reduction targets, but it's not all about decarbonisation. We're seeing increasing focus on biodiversity as being just as important with the global biodiversity framework agreed at the end of last year, including the so-called 3030 agreement, being to put 30% of the planet under protection by 2030. More broadly, we also at the moment have the review of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, the review of the safeguard mechanism, which is drawing to an end, the Nature Repair Bill, which has just been dropped into Parliament, and the review of the integrity of the Australian Carbon Credit Units, which Jay will speak to further shortly. Coupled with all of that, we're seeing increased trading of those Australian Carbon Credit Units, increased pricing, and an increasing focus on those ACUs that have co-benefits. So with all of that, I'm going to throw to you, Jaya. Australia was an early adopter of carbon offset schemes with the first iteration of a carbon credit being introduced into Australian law over a decade ago, hard to believe. So the ACU, the Australian Carbon Credit Unit regime has been around for some time now, but very recently there there has been a flurry of action in this space. Jaya, can you walk us through some of those recent developments? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Catherine. There has for sure been a lot and a few moving parts when it comes to the regulatory changes to the ACU scheme, even just over the last six months to a year. Um, The legislation that empowers the generation and the accreditation of ACUs, which is the Carbon Credits Carbon Farming Initiative Act, like you said, has been around for over a decade. And as to be expected with the change in federal government last year, we've seen a lot of activity in law reform in that area which has included changes to the scheme itself and how emissions reduction is regulated in Australia more generally. One of the biggest changes that we saw last year was the introduction of the Climate Change Act, which together with the Climate Change Consequential Amendments Act has codified Australia's climate change targets, as you talked about, under the Paris Agreement. So that to meet our emissions reduction targets, being the 43% of 2005 targets by 2030 and net zero by 2050, those targets are now part of legislation. As I understand it, the intended effect of those legislative targets is that nationwide commitment and accountability comes to place for emissions reduction across government, industry and sector, as well as the introduction of an annual review and update to federal parliament by the climate change minister. 
that will hopefully put us on a better path to progress towards our climate change targets. While the Climate Change Act did not make any technical changes to the ACU legislation, it's clear now the importance of ACU use and carbon regulation to assist the industry in contributing to Australia meeting its climate change targets. Now, around the same time last year that the Climate Change Act was passed into law, the federal government was also commissioning an independent expert panel to review the integrity of the ACU's regime and how it operates to guarantee genuine emissions. The review, known as the Chubb Review, after the lead expert, Ian Chubb, was submitted to the government at the end of last year, and the findings were released early in January this year. At a high level, the review found that the existing ACU scheme is fundamentally effective and well-designed, and that the current operation of the scheme does not hinder the integrity of ACUs and the carbon abatement projects undertaken under the scheme. But that being a piece of legislation and a scheme that have been around for over 11 years, improvements could be made. Those improvements sat in 16 recommendations to government, which were approved across the board um, and included things like uh, recommendations to clarify the intent of the scheme, to improve transparency in the clean energy regulator's role in its administration and regulation of the scheme, enhancing market confidence in the integrity and effectiveness of ACUs, um, better data sharing and information sharing mechanisms, and enhancing the accessibility of the scheme to regional communities and First Nations people. As I said, in total, all 16 recommendations were accepted by federal government, and we'll see those flow through hopefully. Now, beyond changes to the ACU scheme itself, we're also seeing changes to the larger regulatory landscape for carbon abatement and emissions reduction that creates new opportunities for the private sector to be involved in emissions reduction. One of these new opportunities, which I'm sure we'll talk about further later, um, is the establishment of tailored credits under the safeguard mechanism, which are creatively known as safeguard mechanism credits or SMCs. This is, of course, part of the broad range of reforms that we're seeing real time with the safeguard mechanism at the moment. And I'm sure we could dedicate an entire episode to talking about the, S uh, the safeguard mechanism. But broadly speaking, safeguard mechanism credits that are introduced are not the same as ACUs as they do not measure the carbon dioxide equivalent that's abated or avoided, but will represent each tonne that a facility under the safeguard mechanism reduces its emissions to under its baseline requirements. Heavy emitters will be able to use a combination of safeguard mechanism credits and ACUs to offset their emissions, and it offers a new opportunity for these larger emitters in Australia to further contribute to Australia's climate change targets and incentivise emissions reduction activities. As you alluded to, Catherine, there's also some discussion happening right now around the proposed Nature Repair Market Bill, which will reward landholders for restoring and protecting nature and the environment. The Nature Repair Market is intended to work in parallel with the carbon market and offers participating landholders tradable biodiversity certificates, tradable biodiversity certificates similar to ACUs to incentivize engagement with biodiversity protection. Similar to the carbon farming scheme, methods will be established that set rules for how those nature repair projects can be undertaken so that they are eligible for certification to ensure the projects meet the integrity standards that are offered for genuine improvement to nature and the environment. One other thing I might add is that outside of the regulatory changes and the changes we're seeing to legislation, we're also seeing longer term changes to the industries that are engaging with carbon farming and carbon abatement activities, which is undoubtedly due in part to the global shift we're seeing in the clean energy transition. And this is further supported by Australia's codified commitments to net zero targets under the Climate Change Act. 
for example, the types and numbers of methods that are available to proponents um, as eligible for carbon abatement projects in the Emissions Reduction Fund have been evolving away from your conventional land-based carbon reduction methods like avoided deforestation, diverted landfill and alternative waste treatments, as the clean energy regulator is now looking at industry and technology specific methods, such as carbon capture and storage, aviation transport opportunities, uh, wasted methane emissions from underground coal mining, renewable electrification and soil carbon sequestration. When you think about how much time, research and money would go into these technology intensive methods of carbon abatement and the cost to risk analysis that would be associated with these projects when compared with your conventional land-based deforestation and landfill methods, I think these changes are definitely indicative of industry turning towards decarbonisation as a viable business case um, and really is starting to look like the industry is putting its money where its mouth is. Um, looking at reports on how the proportion of private industry contributes to greenhouse gas emissions in Australia, whether it's across mining, transport and manufacturing, which contribute a significant percentage to overall emissions, I think it's a great indicator of how we're seeing a shift in the Australian business sentiment towards emissions reduction and the opportunity that carbon has to play in Australia's future. Thanks, Jaya. And um, it was really interesting um, just as we're recording, the Climate Change Authority um, put their report out today on the development of carbon capture and storage in Australia as well. So it's more than avoiding emissions. We actually need to be doing a lot more. Um, Bella, turning to you. So you get to spend a lot, a lot of your time um, reviewing climate and sustainability reports and climate transition action plans. And so you have seen how companies disclose their strategies when it comes to the use of carbon credits to offset emissions to reach climate targets. Can you talk us through some of the considerations for companies here as they try to then mitigate their greenwashing risk? Yeah, of course. And I do review an awful lot of climate and ESG disclosure. Um, and I have to say that there's not really standard market practice yet in terms of you know, how companies disclose their use of carbon credits um, to offset emissions as part of reaching their climate targets and how detailed that disclosure is. But in thinking and kind of formulating that disclosure and mitigating greenwashing risk, there are a few strands I think that need to be pulled together. The first is the integrity concerns piece. So some of those sorts of concerns gave rise to the Chubb review of our ACU regime, and we all know the outcome of that review. Um, but the concerns about real and additional abatement are not limited to the ACU regime. So other international voluntary crediting regimes in particular have also been the subject of those sorts of claims. Um, and the reality is that a lot of companies who are buying carbon credits as part of their climate strategies will source them from different sources, right? So they might buy some ACUs, they might buy some VCUs under the Vera scheme, they might buy some carbon credits under gold standard as they look to you know, diversify and they look um, for different types of projects or projects with co-benefits. So the plan then is to buy all these carbon credits and use them to offset emissions, but the criticism is, hey, how do you actually know that these carbon credits do what they say they do? Now, there's some work um, being done to address those concerns. Um, you obviously had the Chubb review in terms of ACUs at the international level. We now have a framework, an assessment framework from the Integrity Council for the Voluntary 
carbon market, which does not roll off the tongue. Um, that council is a global governance body that was set up a few years ago in 2021 um, to develop benchmarks for quality carbon credits in voluntary markets. And that framework that they've developed is intended to sort of identify high quality carbon credits um, and will be used by the council to assess credit types with the intention of then badging um, or labelling those that meet its criteria. So that's helpful um, in terms of disclosure, in terms of companies saying, hey, we purchased these credits under these regimes and they've been badged as meeting certain standards under X. The second um, strand in my multi-stranded response is the activist attention piece. So that's tied obviously to the integrity piece in that activists are scrutinizing the quality of carbon credits. Um, but another focus of activist attention though is the over-reliance on carbon offsetting. So the argument that um, overusing offsets is essentially a license to pollute without doing the hard yards um, to decarbonize to reach goals. So there's for sure pressure to be less net and more zero. And we really saw that play out in the complaint filed um, to the ACCC about the Australian government's own climate active scheme, which is a carbon neutral certification program. The complaint was that that scheme um, may breach consumer law in that the climate um, active uh, program may be misleading consumers by promoting companies that use offsets instead of decarbonizing as progressive climate leaders. And the last point um, or strand I wanted to mention was reporting obligations regarding the use of carbon offsets. So the Australian government um, recently consulted on what our future climate reporting regime might look like. In terms of disclosure of carbon offsets, there's two things I think to call out there. The first is that the government indicated in the consultation paper that some sort of disclosure on carbon offsets might be required. The second thing to call out is that as part of the consultation, the government said, hey, you know, there's scope to deliver reporting requirements that in could incorporate the ISSB standards in the future. The ISSB standard on climate-related disclosure has provisions around disclosure about carbon offsets. And those provisions are really geared towards understanding the extent to which offsetting will be relied upon. So that's that activist piece and the credibility and integrity of the credits intended to be used, that's the integrity piece. So if we're looking down the pipeline, I think we can expect reporting requirements around carbon offsets. And even if say, you know, the ISSB standards don't form the basis of mandatory reporting obligations, at least in the nearer term, um, they could still form the basis of market expectations and disclosure pressures, right? And there's complexities. Um, of course, there are complexities um, to managing that sort of disclosure. In Australia, um, disclosure on forward-looking matters like say a carbon target, needs to be based on objectively reasonable grounds to not be misleading. But there are diverging views on reasonableness, um, including uh, you know, the extent of reliance on offsetting and whether that can form the basis of objectively reasonable grounds underpinning, under, underpinning a climate target. So offsetting strategies um, can be subject to kind of scrutiny and challenge in that way as well. So, I mean, I've chewed your ear off. 
But the short answer to your question is um, managing greenwashing risk in this space in terms of you know, disclosure about carbon offsetting in the context of climate commitments has layers, it's an onion, um, and there are quite a few considerations that come into play. But actually, Catherine, while we're on the topic of regulatory developments, I wanted to turn the spotlight back onto you and pick your brain, um, if I can, about the safeguard mechanism. I mean, it seems a lot has happened um, in the climate and environmental space over the last year, as, as you say, in terms of legislative change, consultation. And actually, the climate reporting consultation is a good example of that. But of course, everyone has been following and talking about the safeguard mechanism reforms and the deal between Labor and the Greens and what, what that all means. Um, but one of the things that the reforms do is introduce this new type of carbon credit, as, as Jay mentioned. Um, but you know, how do you think that's going to interact with the ACCU regime and the carbon credit market in Australia and demand and all those sorts of things? Thanks for your really easy question, Bella. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as, as you said, review of safeguard has, has been really hot and it's the review that has been going on um, for probably the last, last 12 months. So um, the safeguard mechanism applies to facilities that um, have more than 100,000 tonnes of CO2 equivalent scope one greenhouse gas emissions per year. So it applies to, I think it's about 212 facilities and it represents about 28% of our overall emissions. So it's, it's a pretty significant thing to look at in the context of trying to achieve an overall reduction in our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the system is complex and it sits across various pieces of legislation um, and there's various rules that also sit under the system. Um, but ultimately what government um, is aiming to do is have a package of reforms that will be across legislation um, and various rules that will commence on 1 July of this year, with the overall objective being to reduce the baseline, so um, achieve an overall decline in greenhouse gas emissions, and they're looking at about 4.9% per year um, for that decline. At the end of March, there were legislative amendments made following the um, discussions with the Greens through the Safeguard Mechanism Crediting Amendment Bill. And what that did was introduce um, a framework for the Safeguard Mechanism credits um, that we've already spoken about. So those credits are tradable between facilities um, within the Safeguard um, Mechanism and they can be used to abate their emissions. Um, safeguard rules um, will also be um, coming out shortly. That legislation also um, included some amendments that were um, flagged in the review of the ACU regime, um, particularly around governance of ACU. So there is a lot happening. There is so much happening that we've actually decided to do a separate webinar on Safeguard, which um, will be released uh, in May. Um, and in that webinar, we will look at all sorts of things, including how the baselines are to be reduced, um, the use of offsets. And um, Bella, it was really interesting listening to your discussion around offsets that as part of the um, 
the package, um, there will be a requirement for facilities that use more than 30% of their emissions reduction requirements um, by offsets to justify their reason for doing so to the clean energy regulator. Um, so we will also be looking at what that means for, um, for arrangements with carbon pass-throughs as well. So look out for that coming at the end of May. Now, I just wanted to wrap us up, it's the end already, um, by highlighting that the carbon market is a very complex little beast and it touches on all sorts of specialties in law. If you find a lawyer who says that carbon market is something they know everything about, they're either a genius or they're lying. Um, so the ground we've covered today is certainly not the full piece. Daya, can you briefly talk us through some of the other considerations or factors that come into play that companies might need to think about in this space? I love how Bella talked about layers of an onion because that is exactly how I think about the regulatory layers for ACUs. Um, one of the first layers I would think of is that there are always going to be multiple players in the value chain for carbon abatement projects. You have the landowner, um, they may be an agricultural owner, they may be a native title holder, um, they may be the project proponent themselves. You have the project proponent who's getting ready to undertake this amazing carbon abatement activity. You've got the service provider. You may then have the Commonwealth as purchaser of ACUs or a third private party as purchaser of ACUs. And with all of those different players come a whole range of different considerations that could come into play when you're dealing with a carbon market. But then separate to that layer, from a regulatory context, there are a couple of special features with ACUs that definitely need to be considered front of mind when you're looking at engaging with a carbon abatement activity or getting involved in dealing with ACUs. Like you said, Catherine, because these features just range across such a breadth of legal areas, um, it's, it's impossible to be an expert in everything ACUs. And I'm definitely not a specialist in any or all of these areas. Um, but in generalist terms, I've come across a couple of special features in ACUs that I think are worth noting. The first thing is that ACUs are considered a form of personal property. And so they can be dealt with like personal property um, from being sold to being optioned or to even being securitized. Um, what we're seeing as more players enter the carbon market is an emergence of very bespoke contracting arrangements, um, typically where the project proponent will enter into an agreement with the final end user of the offsets. Uh, and there'll be a tailored arrangement around key obligations like capital inputs, the risk allocation over the life of the project and how revenue sharing might work. Um, I've seen them primarily as offtake agreements, but you know, as the way it is with contracting, you can literally agree to anything as long as both parties agree to it. So I would think that very differently to how the government auction process works with your carbon abatement contracts, given that the secondary market is fairly unregulated in this space, It'll be interesting to see where we end up when you think about alliance contracts, joint ventures, partnership agreements, and all different forms in between. It's definitely a space to watch when you think about how those arrangements are going to work. While you're watching the space, actually, thinking about um, contracting arrangements, another thing to add is that we're currently awaiting the clean energy regulator's progress on its Australian carbon exchange, um, which is expected to launch later this year. Uh, and we would want to see with the carbon exchange, which is intended to operate like another type of electronic stock exchange, but for the purchase and settlement and clearing of ACUs, um, how the implementation of an online trading platform 
will make ACUs more efficient and streamlined in the sale and purchase process and how that will play into how the contracting arrangements are going to work. It's actually quite a good segue talking about an online carbon exchange to think about the next special feature for ACUs. Um, and that's that ACUs are a form of financial product when you think about corporations and financing legislation and anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing legislation. What that means is that if you're dealing with an ACU beyond the private sale and purchase context, and if you delve into the realm of carrying on a financial services business, um, you may not only require an Australian financial services license, but there is an additional range of disclosure and reporting obligations, including the way that you provide your product to the consumer that you're going to think about. This adds, again, another layer of complexity when you're looking at the ACU contracting arrangement, especially if you start to step into the processes of being a derivatives contract or any form of financial services contract, which, from what I understand, has an even further more complex level of financial services regulation on top of it. Like I said before, by no means am I an expert in this space, um, but I definitely think that when you look at these complexities, it's essential to get your lawyer involved at the beginning of the process rather than the end so that you know exactly what you're dealing with. And finally, the last special feature that I always like to think about is that in the realm of ACUs and land ownership and land-based projects, each state and territory in Australia will have its own rules and its own processes around the registration of interests and dealings in the land that you're working with in the context of carbon rights. And it's important that you get this right to ensure that not only as the project proponent, you have a valid interest to deal in the land, the area of your carbon project, but that you've engaged with all of the relevant stakeholders that are going to be impacted by your activities. Under the ACU scheme, in order to have a right to generate and own ACUs in your carbon abatement activity, you as the project proponent must have a legal right to carry out the project. And, you know, it depends on how it works state to state, but this will require a valid registration of your rights in the carbon in that land, um, working with the landholders, working with service providers, in some cases working with the state for ministerial consent in order to obtain that legal right to be able to undertake the project. Um, as with any type of land-based project, those, land, those landholder approvals and consents are a critical consideration early on to ensure the project progresses as smoothly as possible. So I think those three things are some of the key features I would think about. And as you can see, the overarching theme across all three of those special features is that you should be proactive engaging with the right specialists as soon as possible in your carbon abatement activity journey, um, because that's going to assist you in the complexities of navigating all those layers of regulatory compliance. Thank you, Jaya. Now, massive thanks to Tim and to Mel, who have let us hijack their Third Wheel podcast, um, but it is traditional, um, and we will stick with tradition, um, that at the end of every podcast, there is an ESG fun fact. So, Bella, can I ask you to take us home with today's ESG fun fact? You can indeed, and I think the fun fact can just be that offsets are onions, um, but actually we have, we, have, we have a much more interesting one for you, which is that um, researchers at the University of Maine have 3D printed a 600 foot home made entirely from natural waste materials like wood fibres and bioresins, um, which were left over from sawmills. The building was printed in four modules. I mean, these printers must have been absolutely huge. Um, then moved to the site and assembled in half a day. 
And the house is currently being monitored to see how it responds to the cold, snow, heat, humidity. Um, but if it responds well, it could be a groundbreaking development in the recyclability and sustainability of housing and buildings um, with, of course, much less sort of embodied carbon than your traditional houses and buildings. And it's also been earmarked um, to be scaled up as a method to sustainably addressing homelessness. So a really positive news story, actually, that we're leaving you with. And that's, that's it from us. As ever, thank you so much for listening. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.